Welcome back to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Juliana. I'm Sophia. And I'm Adriana. And today we're bringing you an episode on the body. This was, I think, your idea for an episode, Sophia, and it felt really liturgically fitting as an episode before Lent Mm -hmm. to explore more deeply, like for the three of us, our relationship with our bodies, how God views our bodies, and this like understanding of ourselves as sacrifice, I think has been really rich and fruitful for my own prayer life. So I'm excited to talk about some of that with you guys today. Definitely. One of the things that inspired me to propose this topic was a recent reflection on how much has changed in my relationship to my body since my reversion to the faith. Mm-hmm. And first of all, I'm just going to say from the outset that I'm going to slip into these ways of speaking like my relationship to my body that are kind of dualist. We are embodied souls. We don't have or possess bodies as if they were instruments of ours. Mm-hmm. But this is the way that our language is constrained. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to slip into this throughout the episode, I'm sure. But we're not dualists. In Christianity, there's a gaze of essential unity and therefore esteem. Mm-hmm on the person as an embodied soul. And this has incredibly practical consequences for the way that we live, the way that we experience pleasure, the way that we experience suffering, the way that we experience embodied care of other persons, um, illness, all of these things that can be areas of enslavement, at least have been in my own personal history, a feeling of a lack of freedom in my embodiment, almost as if my body or the fact of my being an embodied soul were the enemy (laughs) of my fulfillment. But instead, in following Christ, discovering exactly this unity and esteem for myself as an embodied being and how much more freedom, therefore, I experience in my day-to-day life in all of these areas, in pleasure, in suffering, in illness, in embodied service of other people. So I was really grateful to have the chance to reflect and give thanks to God for this path. But I'm excited to speak with the two of you today about your own experiences of embodiment, precisely because most especially, I would say, because of the fact that both of you have the experience of being wives and mothers. And particularly for female embodiment, I think there is a wealth of anthropological insight, but just human lived experience of God and of what it means to be fully human that I can learn from in both of your lives. So I'm really excited to speak with you today. Uh, Speaking also of the body, I did want to mention at the outset that I'm recovering from a cold. So (laughs) my voice, (laughs) I might I'm hoping I don't lose my voice by the end of the episode, but it might be a little rough here or there. So thanks for bearing with us today. Thank you so much, Sophia. I think this is so timely for me because this question of what does it mean to be embodied, what does it mean for us and for our relationship to God, has been such a part of my day-to-day recently. I am about 17 weeks pregnant. Yay! And (laughs) yeah, Adriana just announced her pregnancy on the last episode, if you didn't hear that. And so we're expecting two new Pilgrim Soul babies. (laughs) Very exciting time. But it's also a time in which, as so many women 
no, my body's changing and I'm forced, my daily reality is changing, therefore, and I'm forced to confront these questions every day. And I really see it. I've seen this dualistic tendency in myself emerge even after a decade of trying to heal my relationship with my body and really embrace these truths, my body as gift, my body as good, my embodiment as inescapable. And yet here I am struggling again. Yeah. In, in particular, to make it concrete, uh, one thing that's really been a challenge for me is to not see my embodiment as an obstacle to holiness and as an obstacle to my relationship with Christ because I'm more tired, I'm more sick, I have a one-year-old who's still waking up at night. That makes the exercise of my mental capabilities and the exercise of my will more difficult. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And it's very hard not to see these external circumstances and my physical limitations, therefore, as an obstacle. And it's really humbling, too, to see how much I need to grow in this even after a long time of walking with the Lord and asking for healing in this area. And so, yeah, I'm really encouraged that we'll be talking about this now. And and I have hope for an ever truer understanding of this topic. I can very much relate to that struggle. I think all of us are shaped by postmodern ideology just because of the world that we live in. And so we're encouraged the water we swim in, the air we breathe tells us that our bodies are objects over which we are to exert power, to instrumentalize and manipulate them in order to affirm our will. And as you pointed out very clearly, this lends itself to a kind of Gnostic relationship to our body where we're trying to escape it in order to be with God. Yeah, I can relate to that. And yet also the feeling of profound dissatisfaction with that kind of a relationship to your body. Like it's Mm -hmm. immediately evident in daily experience that that's not the truth of my body and that's not enough. And that Mm -hmm. when I live out of that place, I'm not truly myself. Yeah, I think the body is an inescapable encounter with our own human vulnerability. Mm. And the lie of the technological age, Pope Benedict talked about this a lot, is that in technology, this world we've created, we can be gods, so we're less likely to encounter God. With that comes this idea of invulnerability. And I think that's very much still a goal of Silicon Valley is this idea to live entirely dualistically. And if only once technology or AI advances, we'll no longer need our bodies. We can live in yeah. a metaverse or, and that it will be better. I was listening to a podcast with Elon Musk and Joe Rogan where he argued <laughs> Elon <laughs> argued that the world would be better when we could in the metaverse or in an AI world live experience a fire there. There's nothing about sitting at a fire with our friends in an incarnate embodied way now. Wow. And that just struck both Joe <laughs> and me as very incongruous <laughs> with the experience of our reality. But I think this is the false lie that's being promoted and it impacts us because it is difficult to live with our vulnerability and it is more attractive to at least temporarily escape that in a digitized way if that's what's offered. Yeah, or through things like extreme exercise and control of your diet or, I mean, there are any number Mm -hmm. of ways of doing it that aren't necessarily technocratic or transhumanist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I absolutely agree. And this impacts not only the way we see ourselves and our bodies, but I think it necessarily impoverishes our relationship with each other. Mm. It gives us an inability to embrace the vulnerability of the other. So in these days, I mentioned I've been having this difficulty. I took it to prayer and I really felt the Holy Spirit challenging me to see how this lie that I believed, what it meant for how I saw others and in particular my own children Mm. who are the ones that, you know, my sustaining and nourishing of my two children right now is what has caused this, um, this physical suffering. And so my children are so limited in their physical capabilities and they're so dependent for all their physical needs. I mean, this is the opposite of this uh, Silicon Valley promise that you're describing, Adriana. And yet, you know, would I ever say that God is any less present to them or that they're loved any less or they have any less dignity or they're any less icons of the love of God? No, like that, to me, that idea is or that premise is deeply offensive to me. And yet, like, it's a necessary consequence of what I'm starting to believe, what the culture tells me to believe. I mean, these things go together. We either embrace our own embodiment, and therefore we can embrace the embodiment of everyone, or we reject all of it. I think everything is on the line here. It's not just our own well-being. I can really relate to that, Julie, because I think I see... In motherhood, my children have been a real corrective Mm. for me and in my own gaze at my body, my embodiment, and my experience through this, like, adoration and almost temptation to, like, worship my children in their incarnate selves and, like, love everything Mm -hmm. about their 10 little fingers and toes. And I could just, like, go on. I love gazing at them and the odd proportions of a toddler's body (laughs) (laughs) after my daughter eats her belly like protrudes just this unnatural amount (laughs) and i love it so much and it's gonna go away i'm i'm sure when she grows it reminded me in reflecting for this podcast like this is how god gazes at my body oh yeah And could I see myself with that gratitude and love and adoration Mm -hmm. that I can see in my children and asking for that gift from God to love myself that well? And I think that integration of recognizing the givenness of my whole person, the givenness of my body, like what a gift that is, allows me to better love the giver. Yes, I'm glad you took that step because what struck me as both of you were speaking was that the lie that Satan is tempting us with in repudiation of or neglect of or disrespect of the body is a denial of its essential truth, which is that it's a gift, which means that there's a giver and that it's given for a purpose, Mm -hmm. that the body is a gift. And so to live our embodiment in a true way means to live it with an awareness of its origin in the love of the creator and its destiny, which is eternal beatitude with him. Yeah. And to go back to our episode on creation, if you haven't listened to that, I would recommend you do because I think the body can only be understood properly as a sign of the mystery. Yes, yeah. A sign of the mystery of being, making itself present in the flesh to ourselves and through ourselves to each other. And 
all of the norms that we want to follow, all of the ways that we want to take care of our bodies or regulate our embodiment or take care of other people's bodies, like all of this is a consequence. It all follows from the ontology, which is that the body is a gift and it's a sign of its creator and its destiny with that creator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that we see God's tenderness for our bodies so clearly in scripture. Psalm 139, I think, is the most often quoted um, that talks about God knitting us together in our mother's womb. But I also find the lines that follow very moving. The psalmist says that uh, my body knew no secret from Mm -hmm. you when I was being fashioned in secret. And so God He has fashioned our bodies intimately and with love and knew them before anyone else. This is a special place of encounter with God. And we see his tenderness continued through all of Christ's miracles of healing, just how he was moved with love for the physical suffering um, of his sheep. And as you mentioned to Sophia, our bodies were there at the beginning, the moment we were created, and then they will be there for all of eternity because we believe in the resurrection of the body. We're not just going to be souls in heaven with God. We're going to be our full selves, body and soul. Um, Yes, our glorified bodies, because we all know from our daily experience that our bodies are fallen, but they live on in eternity. Why? But because of the incarnation. I mean, where in scripture do we see more God's esteem for the body, but in the incarnation in which he made, as Tertullian says, this epic line that I repeat to my friends all the time. The flesh is the pivot of salvation. Mm -hmm. The flesh is the pivot of salvation. This is where I'm saved in my body as an embodied soul. This is where Christ meets me. He took a body so that he could love me with his body in my body Mm -hmm. now in the church, in the sacraments. Romano Guardini says there's no religion as materialistic as Christianity. And I was like, I love that. So struck by that this week. Yeah. Isn't that a great line? Yeah. Yeah. When I read it, I immediately thought last week I was at daily mass and there was a friend of mine there who I haven't seen in a while and She's a very affectionate elderly lady, and she didn't notice me when I walked into the chapel. It was only like halfway through the first reading that she saw that I was there, and when she noticed me, she reached over and grabbed my shoulder, and it took me by surprise because it wasn't, you know, the sign of peace, (laughs) but it shocked, it like jolted me with this awareness that Christ, whose word I was listening to in scripture, was the one who had touched me in that moment. Like I had this intense awareness that I was here with him. It was his physical hand, in a sense, that had touched me when Rosemary touched me, like, which would be absurd, right? If it wasn't true, (laughs) if it wasn't true that when we love each other in the flesh, we are loving Christ in the flesh because of his choice in the incarnation to be present amongst us in this way. Yeah, there's no religion as materialistic as Christianity. Like, where else can you get this kind of esteem for your friends where you look at them this way, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I'm just, like, reflecting on the Gospels and how there's so much touch, like, the physicality of Scripture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think we've talked a lot about just the dualistic tendencies that are more prominent in our age. But I think you see less in the Old Testament because of Levitical law. Like, it's so embodied. Yeah. And there was a clear separation between the law and and morality. 
like you're commanded to bury the dead, but also told that that renders you impure. Yeah. But it has nothing to do with with morality, but rather like their understanding of God and entering the Holy of Holies, um, which definitely I think gets conflated in the early Christian church. We like don't fully understand what it means to be impure without including morality. Mm-hmm. Also, what came to mind was Genesis when Adam says to Eve, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, at last this one is made for me. That like Christ says that in the incarnation to us so that we can see Christ and say that to him. Like he has come Mm. so that we're able to say that and it's because he's incarnate. And what does that mean about my body being the hinge of salvation? Like you're saying, Sophia, it's just... yeah divinizing it, you know, and we don't see ourselves that way. Mm -hmm. I think one educative time for me in precisely that move, Adriana was the months I spent living with Julie and Frank Mm -hmm. and when Elena was born, Julie's first daughter. Because just as you were becoming a mother, Julie, like I saw that the changes and even the wounds that your body bore and is bearing now carry the memory of the love that you have with Frank and the way that the Lord chose you to participate in his act of creation. You gave and continue to give your body as food so that another might live. And not just live now, but live eternally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in those months, I was just so blown away with the beauty of that mystery before my eyes every day. That even though my own body hasn't done this, I have a new tenderness towards my body because My body, too, was a way that Christ entered that house in a different way. But by giving it in service to you and by delighting in Elena and by going to receive the Eucharist and bringing it back in my flesh um, after Mass every day. And so that was really a really beautiful time that helped me see the mundane places that this divinization, Adriana, that you speak of occurs It's in the things that we are tempted to overlook that his glory is most clearly visible. Yeah, I love that example and story, Sophia, because it really brings home that it's in like these small sacrificial acts that you're able to show love. You were able to show love to Julianne, Elena, and Frank, and also that they were able to receive your love. And that's so true of my own experience that it's within sacrifice and actual, you know, sacrifice of my body that my love is given meaning and that I can encounter God in it. And I think that really illuminates an understanding of the mystery of the body as a sacrifice. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's not only the sacrifice of our bodies, but there's also the receiving the sacrifice of others. So those months, Sophia, you single-handedly fed me. (laughs) I've never felt so dependent (laughs) on you and on my husband. Um, I depended on you guys to help me sleep. You made me breakfast every day for months. It was beautiful. It was humbling. And in that sense, I was receiving your sacrifice and that enabled me to sacrifice in turn for my daughter. And I'm also so glad that you mentioned the receiving of the Eucharist and how that changed you and enabled you to sacrifice. Um, I think the Eucharist is, and we've talked a little bit about the sacraments, but the Eucharist too Mm -hmm. is such an education for us in this. And I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I had a long history of disordered eating and 
one thing that really helped me was the testimony of this woman. Her name is Emily Stimson Chapman, and she wrote this beautiful book called The Catholic Table. And she too suffered from an eating disorder when she was younger. And she tells a story of how a sacramental worldview taught to her by the church and lived in the sacraments, particularly in the Eucharist, was fundamental towards her healing. Mm. And in particular, she tells this really moving story about how she returned to the Catholic Church and in receiving the Eucharist, Really, she started to see food and her body not as a means to an end, which was thinness or conventional beauty, but as a sign of God's goodness and his tender love and how our Eucharistic Lord and his gaze on her in the Eucharist changed her own gaze on reality. Mm. Um, She began to be able to embrace the delight in food and its role in human life, whether it's the love, the comfort community, the truth of our dependence that we learn from our need from others for food. And all of this helped her love her body and love the bodies of others. Yeah, I think this is really beautiful. And so I highly recommend this for anyone who feels provoked by this reality. But uh, And then this goes back to what we were saying about the incarnation. Christ took on human form out of his love for us and his desire to meet us. And he still does that every single day in every church around the world. This was not a one-time thing 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Christ incarnate wants to give himself to you and he's asking you to receive him and to meet you in the most intimate physical form. Yeah, it's just, yeah. I love that, Julie, I want to go back to sacrifice, but I loved what you were saying about how Emily, through the reception of the Eucharist and being educated in the Eucharist as the ultimate sacrifice for her, she came to be able to view her food in delight as a sign of the Creator's love for her. That, to me, is like the integration that we're looking for. Like, everyone thinks that the church is trying to get you to, like, not follow your desires, like yeah. everything that's <laughs> nice and pleasurable we need to <laughs> abstain from. But through this education of her real desires that took over her whole body, that then she can trust the desires. Like she can trust mm-hmm. that she delights yeah. in this food because it's a sign of the creator, not because the food is the end in itself to gluttony or something. And then she can live more freely in this constant dialogue with the mystery and being educated by him of like, what are my desires? And then that being really embodied so that we don't have to be afraid of our desires as, as moving us away from God. We can, we can live in them because we know that they're the glory of God. Incredibly liberating. At the same time, I think that in my own path of trying to live my embodiment in a true way, I've also seen that a true respect for the body recognizes the need for constraints and guidance and structure. Mm-hmm. My housemate Chia was saying the other day, she was talking about how human gestures are communicative uses of our body, but that it's only because they're directed and only because they're within cultural constraints that this communication can be coherent. And because without that, it's just arbitrary. Mm. I think we see this eminently in in liturgy, of course, Mm -hmm. that it's only worship of God if these embodied actions take place within a rubric, a framework that gives it meaning. And I think we see, to make a broader point, we see the purpose of our body. We're able to live well the purpose of our body 
only if we act in accord with the natural purpose and meaning. And so within the constraints that are set up to guide our use of our freedom, that sounds kind of abstract, but in terms of precisely this point about relationship to food and body image and things, there's a kind of desire for moderation and respect and virtue in things like eating that comes from recognizing that food isn't just a means to the end of manipulation of what my body looks like, but a means to the end of union with God. Mm -hmm. From my friends who are married, I think there's a similar thing that happens in chastity and in the living of sexuality and relationship precisely because of the dignity of the body and the fact that our embodied pleasures are means of union with God and experiencing a foretaste of the heavenly delight he wants to give us forever. There's a natural spontaneous desire to have an education in what it means to live this well and to not leave it up to the arbitrariness of my instinct. I totally agree with you, Sophia. I think chastity is a great example. Like when you come to embrace in a total embodied way, like chastity within your marriage. And I think that is constant because the concupiscence of the flesh is always before us. You can trust like your sexual desires, for instance, for your spouse and embrace those within the virtue of chastity without the fear of, I guess, like my previous sexual history for me personally, where that was always so tainted with lust and like riddled with guilt that I'm not invited to live that way. And anytime like those previous wounds or memories like seep in, that they're obstructing my experience of Christ right now in my marriage. And like when it comes to food, if you're like educated properly in this delight from the creator for like your nourishment and enjoyment, I think you would want to enjoy that within limits, like not exactly gluttony. And then also, if you have that real embrace of recognizing this as such a gift and from the Lord that you can sacrifice that in a way that can also be a gift more authentically or beautifully. Yeah. If you recognize like this is a good that I am giving up in love for you, Lord, and that can lead you into asceticism. Because that's from desire, exactly to your point. It's not a contradiction of desire, but it's saying – My desire is for this ultimate good who has reached me through this particular good. Yeah. Yeah. I think actually you both answered or started to answer a question that I was going to pose, which is how do these propositions square with the denial of your body, asceticism and fasting? We're entering Lent, as we mentioned, in which it's a 40 days of fasting to mirror the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert in preparation for his ministry. And, you know, more broadly, I think somebody outside the church could listen to this episode and say, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not the Catholic church. The Catholic church is rigid and asks you to deny yourself and deny your natural desires rather than embrace them and see them as good. And where you've both 
sadder that these two are compatible if lived correctly. If you live asceticism not as a rejection, but as an embrace of a higher good and as an offering. So yeah, just wondering if you could unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this real Manichaean notion that like people still bring into the church that we like hate matter and that's why we promote asceticism because the body is bad. And I mean, everything about this episode has been trying to show that the church actually rejects this and the incarnation is like the pivotal like event of rejection, if you will. But for me, my clearest example right now is still chastity. I don't do a lot of like ascetic fasting in pregnancy. (laughs) Yeah. I've talked about this on other episodes, but living natural family planning with my husband does involve periods of abstinence. And I wondered how I would live those or you just like hear about it from the outset as like kind of just the suffering of of marriage that is inevitable or something. And we honestly, of course, it does include a cross. I don't want to like act as if the cross doesn't exist. But I really do experience that the cross can be beautiful in that it's like an invitation for us to withhold this good of our marriage. Our sexuality and our sexual relations are a good of our marriage and the re-participation of the vows that we made at marriage. But also withholding that, I think, helps us to gaze at Christ and Mm -hmm. remind us that those vows were for him. He's the bridegroom. And to live, to participate in the celibacy of the priesthood and religious life, not in the fullness, of course, but it is a glimpse at that. And that like ritualized practice, you know, there's a space like every month in my cycle that includes that is educative again and again. And it can be this like beautiful time in addition to the cross. And I think that provides like a lens for me for all asceticism that if I'm really like encountering Christ here in this ascetic practice, then through this sacrifice I've made so that I can like see him more fully and he and I can allow like what he's calling me to to be like realized more fully even in abstract ways right now yeah I don't know if that makes sense yeah thanks for those reflections Adriana they're beautiful and eye-opening I think in my own experience of asceticism it's very contrary to my personality. I'm someone who really suffers difficult physical sensations intensely, whether that's cold or hunger or whatever it is. I am not a natural born <laughs> ascetic. But over the years of my following of Christ, a desire spontaneously arose in me, as I think it does in, in all of us, with Christian maturity to affirm Christ in my embodiment, in the things that I do in my body, to do them for the glory of God. As St. Paul says, you can eat and drink for the glory of God. And so looking at things like involuntary sacrifices, like cycling across Cambridge in the middle of winter and the wind's blowing and I'm freezing, but also voluntary things like on Fridays, the fact that the bishops in England and Wales have reinstated the year-round abstinence from meat and just generally were invited to keep it as a penitential day in memory of the Lord's sacrifice on the cross. Like, A desire rose in me to, in these moments, unite myself 
to Christ in my body, to experience my hunger as a unity with his hunger for souls and his thirst from the cross, and to enter into more deeply the mystery that my body is a member of his body. And so, yeah, I guess I would say for me, the meaning of acts of fasting, which I do with more or less awareness uh, on any given day. Like I said, I don't always live this well, but the meaning of it is the possibility of magnifying the Lord in my flesh by affirming that he is the meaning of everything, that nothing would be worth doing. It wouldn't be worth eating like another meal if not for Christ. And so by going without one once, out of love of him, out of memory of his suffering, and out of solidarity with the people in whose bodies he is still suffering today, I can affirm in a private way, but the angels see it, that everything is for him alone. And so it can be something precisely because it does bite into my flesh, as it were, like because I do feel these things intensely. It can serve as then a provocation to look at other things in my life that don't as overtly have to do with the flesh, like the way that I'm treating my friends or the way that I'm working, Mm -hmm. and serves as a reminder to say, this is for the glory of God too, or it's not worth doing. But because of him, it's worth doing, and it's worth doing in a way that proclaims his glory. And so it's a practice that recalls me to the meaning of reality as a sign of the mystery and my desire for everything that I do to reflect that truth. So I don't find it easy, but I am grateful for the way that it converts me. And so I see that I have more esteem for my body and for my life after Mm -hmm. beginning this path of fasting than I did before, which I think is a sign that it's not, it's not Gnostic, you know, it's not making my flesh the enemy. Yeah, Sophia, what I hear in in what you're sharing is just so much truth about what it means to be human. I mean, what's more human than standing in front of the person you love and desiring to be united with him and also desiring to share in his suffering? I mean, I can think of so many times when someone close to me has been suffering and I've wanted nothing more than to take that suffering from them. And aestheticism is a way in participating in the passion of Christ and and suffering with him. And as you said, it makes us more human, not less, because Christ is the perfect man and we are made for unity with him. Yeah, so I really see a very provocative invitation in that experience. I loved what you were saying too. I was really struck by that you make these sacrifices out of love and it's a training ground too for other sacrifices out of love. Yeah. So you're like intentionally at times withholding food or something and you feel the pain of hunger, but you know, like I've made this sacrifice out of love. Can I ask to live this lovingly too and not, you know, Mm -hmm. like kind of treat other people poorly because you're hungry? (laughs) Which is a continual (laughs) temptation. (laughs) Yeah. But then that becomes a training ground for those other moments when like people ask of you your neighbor asks of you on a whim a sacrifice that you don't want to yeah. you don't want to do like that just happens to me all the time where i'm like one of the kids asks something and and i don't want to do that right now i don't want to like make that sacrifice but through 
these like a little ascetic practices, you kind of get trained into more patience, more temperance, like a greater love for the other's good than like your own contentment at the moment. Which I need because I think not being a wife and a mother means that I don't experience as persistently in little embodied things the invitation to deny myself. Um, And so I see how easily the kind of life that I lead can lead to a kind of rigidity and at the same time, like softness, like an incapacity to go beyond my instinct in the way that I want to set my schedule and, you know, determine what I'm going to eat and what I'm going to eat and all these things. And so all that is to say, I think that for those of us who are <laughs> living alone, this can be probably a more important element of our path of Christian discipleship to supplement what what we would otherwise be perhaps receiving in family life. I did also want to say, though, that I think I think it's important to go back to this fact, Adriana, that you mentioned of our concupiscence, or in other words, the fact that we're embodied but fallen. And so while our bodies are good and come from the creator with a destiny of beatitude, I certainly at least often experience that my body is groaning for redemption as St. Paul says, together with the rest of creation. And so another way that I see asceticism as suited to our embodiment is in, I guess I would say reparation, but almost as like an an act of contrition and sorrow and begging for mercy for all of the ways in which in my body I have sinned against the truth of reality, sinned against God. So I don't know if you have reflections on the fallenness of the body and how to live this well, but I would welcome them because this is an area that I think of tension in my own life, in the faith, and yeah, and I want to grow in it. Yeah, I think just immediately like the penance given for my sins, that confession, Mm. that it's normal to, and human and good, to like want to be penitential to who we've offended. And I feel that like when I've wronged my husband that I want to like make it up to him yeah. in addition to a heartfelt apology. And I think Lent is a supreme opportunity to reflect on that because we're gazing the crucified Christ and preparing for his sacrifice that we've we participate in. And every time we sin, we're nailing we're hammering a nail into his hand too. Yeah. And Like, I love you so much, Christ, but like an hour after the Last Supper, I forgot you, you know, (laughs) Um, as the apostles do in scripture. That happens to me over and over again. So I think it's natural to like for asceticism to be mixed with, with a desire for penance out of love. I also appreciated your reflections on our circumstances and how that Mm -hmm. impacts our lives. And I think that's why the the church gives like fairly moderate forms of asceticism before us fasting for meat on Fridays. And you're also like invited not to do that. If you're pregnant, breastfeeding or under the age of 14, like there's a lot of (laughs) parameters, Yeah, but that it's in your circumstances and it can take probably like opposite forms for someone that really suffers from disordered eating. Like, 
I think I'd want to say like it's a form of asceticism at times when you're healing from that to eat. Yeah, it it is. It, and it can be harder. Yeah, I believe that. It's all like within your circumstances and what helps you to like increase that gaze with mm-hmm. Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate what you're saying, Adriana, about kind of the simplicity of the approach that's proposed to us. And I think it ties into something my response to your earlier question, Sophia, about uh, how do we respond to the fallen nature of our bodies. And I think a great model for us here are children and the simplicity with which a child approaches her father should be the model for how we approach God in our fallen nature. A child is so aware of her physical needs and her limitations and all the ways in which she needs help. And she just accepts them with simplicity. She doesn't try to hide them. She doesn't try to fight them. And she has complete trust that her father will fulfill all of her needs. And so I'm thinking in particular, my daughter, like she fell the other day and she scraped up her knee and she keeps coming to us with her knee and just asking us to make it better. And (laughs) she thought it was dirt at first. So she like gave me a napkin (laughs) to kind of like clean her knee. Um, And she continually does this and just with this freedom and it's an imperfection of her body. It's a wound right now. I've just been really challenged to live that way with my own physical wounds, just not fighting them, bringing them to the father yeah. with simplicity like children. I mean, I think that's the answer there. Thank you. What you both shared, I think, illuminates for me that a critical principle here is realism. Realism about our circumstances and realism about our suffering. Yeah. I'm reminded of a story. Giussani suffered from Parkinson's in his final years of life. And his physical therapist in the biography on his life shares this story, a simple story of one day when he was in tremendous pain. He arrived at the end of the day saying, what a horrible day. Yet I'm sure that if this is what the mystery has decided for my life, that it'll be a better and a quicker path to him than what I had in mind. Therefore, today was also beautiful because it's true. Mm -hmm. And that has always struck me because he wasn't pretending like he wasn't in a lot of pain and it wasn't a horrible day, but he was so aware of the true object of his desire that he was able to affirm even circumstances that he never would have chosen for himself in his embodiment. And so it makes me think about, I also recently read uh, Dostoevsky's The Idiot and one of the themes through the book is this Holbein's picture of the dead Christ so ugly that it makes people not believe in the resurrection. Like he's so dead that people look at it and say, oh yeah, that man can never rise. Yeah, three days dead. (laughs) Yeah, three days dead, exactly. Why do I bring that up? Because I think a critical precursor to a true faith in Christ that we've verified through our experience is the ability to look at in our bodies The fact that we're destined for corruption and that we are wounded and that in a sense, we are three days dead. Mm -hmm. And to look at that with realism and so to be able to beg, Lord, I need to see that you're the resurrection here in this wound, in this death, in this experience of annihilation. Otherwise, we don't believe in the resurrection. We believe in a fairy tale somebody's told us, but we haven't verified in our lives. Mm -hmm. So I think... That's incredibly freeing for me because we don't need to be scandalized by anything that we suffer in the body. All of it becomes an opportunity 
to discover as if for the first time the newness that Christ alone can bring. Like the end of winter, you know, that first the snowdrops are coming up in Cambridge. And every year it gets me like, shit, I forgot. Cambridge is beautiful. There's <laughs> life here. But if I wasn't so aware of the darkness and the dryness and the cold, I wouldn't know what it was to have new life. So that's helpful as I'm thinking about Lent in particular and what it means to begin these practices of asceticism, begging for the resurrection from a posture of realism about the death that exists in my life. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing, Sophia. That's really powerful and I think a really good place to end and something for us to continue to reflect on. Mm. Do either of you have a monthly challenge for our listeners? Keeping in mind, they're going to be, most of them probably listening to this during Lent. Yeah, I was thinking that a good monthly challenge would be to spend time in prayer, just intentionally thanking God for your body and asking him to really be able to see it as gift. And Mm. maybe with some of the Psalms of Thanksgiving, just because, as we said, it's so easy to fall into dualistic tendencies or to just not really think about your body and how God encounters us there. So I think that that would be a real opportunity for a deeper encounter. I love that. One of the reflections that I find powerful in my morning offering sometimes is going body part by body part and asking how can can this be a gift today? Mm. If that strikes our listeners, maybe that can be an entry point to Julie's monthly reflection. Do either of you have a media recommendation? Yeah, I was pondering this mystery of the fact that, as Carol Hauslander says, God on earth was a man in love and that therefore we experience his love in the flesh. And what came to mind was Bernini's sculpture of St. Teresa of Avila. We'll put a link to an image of it in the show notes if you're not familiar with it. I think it keenly illustrates the fact that all of the pleasures that we experience in the body are like the white dawn announcing the rising of the sun, not competing with, but precisely pathways to the experience of union with God that will be consummated in heaven. And so we don't need to fear them, but to order them to this end. So Bernini's Sculpture of St. Teresa. Thank you, Sophia. I love that. And I'm going to love reflecting with that image before me. Well, we wish all of you a joyful and prayerful Lent. And we will be with you in April. As ever, you can find all of the resources we mentioned on this episode in the show notes and an archive of all of our monthly challenges and media recommendations on the website, which is pilgrimsoulpodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. Thanks, everybody. 